That's, isn't that meaningful? <laughs> what a beautiful, beautiful video. We could almost say, amen, thank you, Lord. We can go home now. God's faithfulness to us in our lives, the joy of a father and daughter. <laughs> she wants to serve with him even though Steve's old. I love it. We thank God for Hannah. We thank God for Steve and the Dutton family. Thank God for all of you. We're glad you're here today. Balcony, hello everybody up there. Good to see you. That's my gang when I'm not preaching right up there. Uh, today we have the opportunity to carry on the, the study we began last week in a thing called the Fruit of the Spirit. And I've been given a wonderful joy to talk on one of them today. But before I tell you which one that is, I want to talk to you about a happenstance that Marie and I had just last night. We finished all of our work, we had a nice evening meal, and then we sat down to watch a movie, Encore Family uh, Channel, and there was, there was this happy fairy tale movie called Enchanted on. Some of you have seen Enchanted, it's a Cinderella-esque sort of deal. And, and it starts in very old Disney-like format with old characters and cartoons. And the, the princess is saved from the dragon in a cartoon format from, uh, by the prince. And then, lo and behold, everything changes. And because of some wicked events from a wicked mother, well, anyhow, what happens is she, the princess is catapulted into the real world. And she wakes up in downtown uh, New York City and she pops out of a... What do you call those things? This, yeah, the sewer. She pops out of the sewer. And, and, and it's Amy Adams. A and she's a princess. And she's trying to navigate her way around depressing, dark, cynical, if you will, real world that we live in. And she's, she, she believes she's a princess. And she acts like a princess. It isn't that she's just lovely. She's lovely inside. Every part of her is so pure. You say, that's naive. I mean, it's almost Will Ferrell elf-like. Okay? <laughs> and the story is, and then the, the prince comes out of the cartoon world and pops up on, on Times Square as well, and he's come to find her and return her. And he's good, too. And, he, and he, he's got a sword, and he dresses funny, but he really believes he's a prince, and she really believes she's a princess, and you can't really be a princess, and you can't really be a prince that is good and noble in today's world. And yet the happiness of the fairy tale story is that they stay true to themselves, and they pretty much transform everyone around them into their goodness. It's unbelievable. That's why we call it a fantasy. Now, guess what? When God talks to us about the Spirit himself and what the Spirit does in us, it's almost unbelievable. It's almost unimaginable to perceive how good the God who lives in you, if you know Jesus Christ, wants to make you. It's almost unbelievable. It's, it's prince and princess-like. Better, it's God-like. For when we see God manifested in the flesh as Jesus Christ, we see a human being full of love and joy and peace 
and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness. He even says, I am gentle and humble of soul. Self-control. This is not a fairy tale. This is the true story of God himself in all of his beauty, in all of his grandeur, in all of his perfect character. And then he says he wants to, as our songs had it, breathe it in us and make us like that too. Well, God wants you to be captured by the thought of how noble and good and Christ-like you can become as the Holy Spirit rules in your lives. That's where we're going today. I, I've been given the uh, task of guiding us in this, and, and let me put up this quote first by John Sanderson, who says this, the Christian must have meaningful character growth or else they're not a Christian. Sounds a little harsh, doesn't it? We tend to camp out an awful lot on everything that's wrong in us, and boy, is there a lot. <laughs> Easy to do. There's no part of me that's what it should be. Um, I'm not as good as I could be in any part of my life, and I'm pretty awful in some of them, and it's easy to just think that's the essence of who I am, but not any longer. No. Jesus Christ, resurrected from the dead, is resurrected in our hearts, and Jesus Christ starts building us into noble persons. That's the objective of the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. We'll put it up on the screen for you again. Love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Wow. God, could you really do this in me? Yes. He can really do it in you. He can really do it in me. Now, some say, well, I'm, I'm okay on kindness. Don't think I'll ever get the patience thing down. Uh, self-control, eh, you know, uh, uh, no, 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 no. Christ is all of that, and Christ is in you, if you know Jesus Christ, and he intends for all of the fruit to be in you, and he intends to ripen it throughout our lives and grow it, strengthen it, and bring us to full maturity. This is his deal. Now, I get to talk about one of them, and I've been given uh, the really difficult task of talking about joy. I've been given the delightful task to talk about joy. Joy, the second of the fruits. Love, joy is the second of the fruits. There, we see in the New Testament the word is in the noun form, which is joy. And then you probably have seen, if you're reading your Bibles, you see the word rejoice a lot. That's the same word in the verb form. And so you see them nearly 60 times in the New Testament. Some people estimate that the concept of joy is used up to 300 times in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and it's used often to describe God. Joyful God. Have you ever put those two words together? Joyful Jesus. Yes. It's a part of the nature and the character of God. Now, what is joy? I tried to find lots of uh, synonyms, and then I thought, no, joy does it pretty well all on its own. You know what I mean when I say joy, don't you? Delight, joy, a type of happiness. Some people try to, to change the difference between happiness and joy, and scholars I read this week suggest you're really pushing 
it too hard. It's really talking about a sense of well-being, a, a kind of a contented euphoria. And we're called to it. Joy, joy, joy. Joy, joy, joy. Now you say, well, that, yeah, I'm joyful sometimes. It's easy to be joyful when things are joyful, right? When circumstances are good, that sense of euphoric contentment or well-being, joy, it attaches to us easily. Marie and I had a lot of joy the last two weeks. We were in Southern California where we love to dwell in the desert and the mountains at the same time. And one of our most delightful experiences is at dusk, we get on our little cruiser bikes with baskets on the front. Mine has one on the back too. That's so that we can have our beach towel in, in one and we can have water and food in the other. And we just love to cruise all around the neighborhoods. And at dusk, we can go out on the golf courses because the golfers have come in. And we love to ride the trails as the sun is going down over the mountains in Southern California. It's a beautiful, wonderful thing. And then the big sprinklers come on. On the, on, on the golf cars, you know, and, and we try to ride around them so we don't get wet. But it doesn't matter if we get wet. Why? Because we have our beach towels in the basket. All right. Happy time, right? We all have those. In fact, let's just pause for a few seconds of silence. Think about one time this week when you really experienced joy. Let yourself remember it. You got it? I see a lot of smiles. That means you, you found it, didn't you? You found at least one, many of us, many more than just one. Yeah, it's a wonderful part of life when we have joy-filled experiences. They attach themselves easily when circumstances are good. But what's tough is... Joy in the midst of the battles of life. Because life is generally a lot more sad than it is glad, right? Because of the battles in life. Here's my thought for the day. And if you were to take something with you following this message, this would be the idea. God wants us to be captured by joy even in the midst of the battles of life. God wants us to be captured by joy in the battles of life. I know, sounds impossible. It sounds like enchanted. It sounds like fairy tale land. But if the scriptures talk about it as doable, can we entertain the plausibility? That's where we're going to go today. So, where do we go? Where do we find joy? tied in with sorrows, joy tied in with battles of life. I've chosen the Apostle Paul as a great guide for this to us. Paul, one of the great servants of Jesus Christ. For those of you that are new to Christianity, Paul is often called the Apostle Paul. And churches all over the world named after Paul, one of God's closest uh, uh, human voices in the first century. And he and his friends went all over lower Europe and the Middle East to tell the story of Jesus wherever they could go. One time, uh, he was in a place called Philippi, Philippi. 
and he was proclaiming Jesus Christ, but something horrible happened in Philippi. The year is approximately uh, 50 A.D., and Paul was preaching, and a woman who was a fortune teller hears Paul and Silas, and as they're preaching, she is always interrupting them, yelling, these men come from God and can tell you the way to be saved. These men come from God, tell you the way to be saved. Now, you would think Paul and Silas would like that. It's kind of like social media, right? It's, it's, you're getting your, getting your word out there. But she kept doing it and doing it and doing it, according to Acts chapter 16. And Paul realizes this isn't advancing the gospel. This is competing with the gospel. And he casts a demon out of her because she was demonized. And she no longer could be a fortune teller. And then that led her owners who made a lot of money off her fortune telling to be very mad. And the next thing you know, Paul and Silas are, the text says this, stripped, beaten with rods, severely flogged, put in stocks, and thrown in prison. Let me repeat that. This is, what you do, this is not a joyful circumstance. They, they are stripped, beaten with rods, severely flogged, put in stocks, thrown in prison. And then that story says, and about midnight, imagine how they're all crumpled up and, and said, and about midnight, they were singing. They were singing hymns to God. Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no, I don't know what they were singing. That one wasn't written yet. but they were praising God in song. You don't do that when you're in despair. Even if you're sad, you, you start to sing and it kind of helps you. They're singing, they're singing, then an earthquake hits and the cells are thrown open and all of the prisoners could escape, but Paul and Silas kind of hold them all together. The jailer comes down, he says, I'm gonna commit suicide, I'm gonna lose my job for this. Paul says, no, 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 everyone's fine. Sing with us, great is thy... That's not in the text, but it might have happened. And as a result, the jailer and his whole family come to faith in Christ. As a result, many more people hear the word of God. Here's what I'm saying. Paul juggled sorrows with joy. They were both there. He couldn't help but be sad. He couldn't help but be in a tough, tough space. But he was able to get beyond it. How? We're going to talk about that in just a little bit. You say, well, maybe that was a fluke. Maybe that one time, you know, he got it right. No, no, no. Would you open your Bibles with me, please? Open them to the letter to the Philippians now. Philippi is the place where that story took place, but open your Bible to the letter to the Philippians. I believe it's page number uh, 1161 in the Bibles that we provide for you there. And turn to the very first chapter. I want you to see St. Paul's capacity to experience great sadness and gladness concurrently. Joy with sorrows. Starting in verse 12, he says, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. What has happened to him? Everybody found it now? You found it so you can listen? Okay. All right. What has happened? Well, he's in prison again. <laughs> 
Now, where we're reading now is somewhere between 10 and 12 years after the story I just told you. But he's in prison again, not in Philippi. This time it's in Rome. They, uh, scholars believe it's right around the year 62 A.D. Paul will be um, killed, martyred, when he's about 64, 65. And so he's, he's, he's in prison, and he's going to probably be there for good. That's the setting. But he writes to Philippi because he's sending letters out to the churches he helped plant. And so he says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, what's happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. He's not only in a cell, he's in chains. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord, and they dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Verse 15, it's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. Others do it out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I've been put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, and they're supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true motives, Christ is preached. And now the last phrase, one, two, three, four, five, six words. And because of this, I, what's it say? Rejoice. Get it? He's in prison, probably for the last time. Doesn't look like a good situation. He's writing letters to churches. But his attitude, his buoyancy is such where he says, hey, because I'm here in prison, number one, I've gotten to share with the whole palace guard. Every secret service agent has heard the gospel. Number two, so many people here in Rome and other places are hearing what I'm going through and what I'm doing, and they're now out there telling the Jesus story with much more boldness than ever before. So, he's got that going for him. And third, he says, there's even some people that they were probably envious of Paul. They, they were pastors at the church down the street, always just a little jealous of Paul. And, and, and now he, there's not as many in Paul's congregation, so they went to this congregation. And, 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 and they're pre, they're pre, I don't know what was going on. Paul says, from impure motive, but they're still proclaiming Jesus Christ as dying for sins and raised from the dead. <laughs> so Paul takes what looks like a horrible situation, a horrible battle, and he says, one, I get to share Christ with everybody in the palace guard. Two, more people out there are sharing faith as a way of life. Three, even people that have been against me are still declaring the gospel. So what does it matter? And he ends it all by saying, this makes me really joyful. <laughs> I mean, it's as crazy as enchanted. <laughs> but that's the Apostle Paul. I could go to other characters in the Scriptures too. Time doesn't allow. What makes him that way? Well, carry on with me in the letter to the Philippians, and would you go over to the fourth chapter, please? Chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 4. 
Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Verse 4, twice. He uses the verb form of joy, and he says, be joyful, be joyful. It's in the command in the, in the language, in the original language. So it's be joyful, be joyful, everybody. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Why? The Lord is near. That's very important. If you want to understand St. Paul's mindset as to how he could be joyful in the midst of such calamity, understand that it had a lot to do with his sense that God was right there with him right now. Okay? The Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything. And now, he says, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. While this is not intended to be a how-to manual from Paul, nor is this meant to be a how-to sermon on joy, just catch what he reveals here. In his own life situation, he prays. And it's two types of prayer. He says, don't worry about anything, but in everything, pray. Pray petitions, requests to God. So whatever battles you're going through, whatever battles uh, we're going through, God wants us to go to him about that and say, God, would you make this right? Would you help in this calamity? Would you deal with this situation at work? Lord, would you help me reconcile with my, my brother, my sister, my wife, my mom, my dad? Please, Lord, make this, make this wrong thing right. That's petitions. And then it also says, he says, pray with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is like a lifesaver to a drowning person. Thanksgiving reminds us of all the things God is and all the things God is doing, how beautiful and wondrous he is. And the more you thank him for things, I bet everyone here could, could thank God for 100, 200 things this week. It can be as small as a smile from a, a child. It can be as large as um, a check arriving you didn't know was coming. Uh, a, a, an advancement at work. I got a wonderful letter today from a former, this week from a former employer, and it just brightened my day. It can be a little thing. It can be a bird singing in between the rainstorms last night. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. So Paul's lifestyle is to pray about everything that's going on, all the battles in life, and then also to pause and give God thanks, 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 thanks. Then look at verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think, and I have the word think circled there, think about such things. Focus your mind on what is noble and good and right. You've got to accentuate the positive, okay? Why is it positive? Because God is here. And if God is here, all things are possible. 
Think on what is good and what is right. Now, on Mother's Day, when I had the privilege to speak before us, I put up a little graph that several of you said was very helpful. I'm going to show it again because this is what I try to think about when I'm facing the battles of life. I think about God as sovereign. I, I, I think about God who works out all things everywhere in conformity with the purpose of his will. I think about the God for whom nothing is a surprise. I think about the God who permits or allows all things, who is there in all things, even the harshest and worst things of life. I think of him as sovereign. Then I think of him as good. You realize how bad it would be to have a sovereign God who's not good? A.K.A. Zeus? You know, if you go back to mythology? But our God is good, perfect in all ways. And our God makes good out of everything. The Bible says this so very clearly for us in Romans 8, 28. God works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purposes. So the sovereign God is a good God who has good in mind, and then finally, his love. Psalms 103, 17, from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with all those who revere him. Wow. I think that the Apostle Paul, when he talks about, think about what is true, what is noble, what is right, he's thinking about who God is. And that God is with us. There's a buoyancy that comes from that. Yeah. How did he do it? How did he rejoice? He calls us to pray or, and thank him, and he calls us to think right thoughts about him. I call it TNT, thank and think. Thank and think. It enables you to float in the storms of life. This is who God is. Now, some would say, oh, come on, Lon. It's a little silly. I mean, really, can life work like this? Can the fruit of joy be evidenced in tough things? I just have to take three minutes and read a story from my favorite preacher. His name is Chuck Swindoll. I mean, Rob Boo. Uh, his name is Rob. I think Rob and I both love Chuck. He's about 82 now, marvelous biblical communicator and a funny guy and a great leader. Okay, he, he wrote this uh, when, he, when he had airplane problems. Many of you will relate. As I write these words, I'm at 35,000 feet. It's 5.45 p.m. Saturday. It should be 4.15 on Saturday. The plane was an hour and a half late. People are grumpy. Some are downright mad. Flight attendants are apologizing to complicate matters. Across the aisle from me is a Japanese gentleman who has a rather severe nosebleed. They're trying to instruct the poor chap and what he should do, but he doesn't speak a word of English. So now the meal is late. It tells you how old this is, a meal on an airplane. All right. And, and he says, the lady on my left has a cold and makes an enormous sound when she sneezes, which is about every 90 seconds because I've timed her. Uh, <laughs> it's something like a dying calf in a hailstorm is what she sounds like. 
On top of that, the video system just went out. It, it started with a mechanical problem and on and on it goes. So let, let me say that in the midst of this kind of situation, Paul's description of the fruit of the Spirit, joy, seems a little nuts. I can imagine overflowing with those virtues when everything is running smoothly, when the world isn't handing you a raw deal, but when nothing's going right, how can I live like that? I mean, joy, the lady is sneezing on me. Joy, the video system broke down. Joy, when everyone's panicking. Joy, when we're irreversibly delayed. Joy, we're all hungry. Joy, uh, all we want to do is lash out faithfulness when everything in us tells us to, to take our cue from the majority self-control forget it man i'm bubbling inside and he says yeah the rubber of christianity meets the road of proof at just such intersections of life whether earthbound or airbound as we cultivate the fruit of the spirit we begin to gain the ability to accept delay or disappointment the ability to smile back at setbacks, respond with a pleasant, understanding spirit, the ability to cool it while others around us are cursing it. For change, he says, I refuse to be hassled by today's delay. I asked God, keep me calm, keep me joyful, keep me relaxed, keep me refreshed. And you know what? He did it. He really did. No pills, no booze, no hocus pocus, just relying on and relaxing in the power of the Spirit. Then I love this paragraph. He says, I can't promise you that others will understand that sort of behavior. <laughs> in fact, when the expected response is the deeds of the flesh, the fruit of the Spirit looks a little weird. You see, I've got another problem now. Ever since takeoff, I've been smiling at the flight attendants, hoping to encourage them. But just now, I think I overheard one of them say, watch that guy wearing glasses. I think he's had too much to drink. Because God is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. In all whom he dwells, he is creating that character. No ifs, ands, buts about it. You say, really, Lon? His life is such a battle, and especially the joy one. Really? Take a look at this drawing, if you will, that Eric and I put together. This world, we're fighting every day and every minute of every day the battles that are going on inside us, our own brokenness, all the ways that we blow it. It's a fight for goodness within us. We, we fight battles outside us all the time. You don't have any control uh, over whether the microblast hits your house in Wilmette like it did the man who sat next to me on an airplane this week. I mean, stuff just happens at us all the time. Battles within, battles without. But here's what I wanted to offer through the Scriptures. There is a joy in you, and I put it as the lowest line in the sense of something enables us to endure those things and to start to carry the joy of the sovereign, good, loving God 
who has displayed himself in Jesus, it goes with us all the way through this life. All the way through. Now, and here's the really great news. Someday, the battles within me are going to end. Someday, the battles outside me are going to end. Someday, joy is going to soar. When Jesus Christ returns, until then, we battle living out joy day by day by day. You say, are you sure about joy? I can take some of the others. I'm sure about joy. May I tell you why I'm sure that joy is a real one and not just an Amy Adams and Enchanted? Because Jesus himself was joy. I found three incredible texts that as I read them, because I realized I don't usually think of God, the Father, Son, and Spirit as joyful. I don't think of Jesus when he was on earth as joyful. I think of him as serious. I think of him as sacrificial. I think of him as commanding. I think of him as, uh, as bleeding. But I don't think of him with joy. And I'm terribly wrong for that. In John chapter 15, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he's just talked to them about how to rest in him. And he says in this learning to rest and trust him, then he says in John 15, 11, I've told you this, that my joy may be in you. We capitalize that, see it? That my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. One, one uh, uh, translation has it, your joy, may, my, your joy is going to overflow. Why? Because my joy is in you. Really? Oh, Lord, release your joy that is in me. Look at this next text, which is a part of his great prayer to the Father in the upper room. It says, I say these things, Father, while I am still in this world, so that they, meaning his followers, may have the what? The full measure of my what? Joy. Would you say it with me? Joy. Say it again, please. Joy. God is joy. As well as all else that he is. And Jesus says twice that he's inserting his own joy in his essence that is within us. I think we don't live in it more because we don't see it much <laughs> in others. We get rather used to just battling and throwing up an occasional prayer. But I think we can live a much higher plane, a much higher hopefulness. Even when our Lord Jesus Christ was dying, even when the God of the universe, who had squeezed himself into humanity, allows himself to be hung on a cruel cross for the forgiveness of our sins, even then joy is in there. Hebrews chapter 12. The author cries out, fix your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, Jesus, 
He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. Consider him so that you don't go weary and lose heart. The answer to despair is God. The answer to despair is Jesus Christ and his joy that can be in you. G.K. Chesterton sums it up quite well. He says this, Joy is the gigantic secret of the Christian. The tremendous figure which fills the Gospels, meaning Jesus, towers in this respect as in every other. Jesus towers in joy as in every other respect. If you know Jesus Christ and you say, boy, I don't live on the joy side of the battles. You need to start saying to him, and I suggest you do it every day. God of joy, live your joyful life in me as I face the battles of life. He is in you. He is joy. May his joy capture you in the battles of life. Let's pray. And so, Lord, to you we present these words and these thoughts. Thank you, dear God, Father, Son, and Spirit, that you are a God of joy as well as all the fruit of character. And be pleased, Lord, to place them in us and grow them until we're shocked at how good you can make us be. Why? Because you love us. 